0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 189, the most untrue creature. A couple of housekeeping bits to start off with, if you don't mind. Firstly, another ACAST survey. I'm really sorry. I know many of you responded to the last one, and thank you very much for that. And I am sorry to bug you again. But can I beg a boon? Could you nip along to survey.acast.com and take five minutes to fill out another one? They share the results with me, and it's really useful and interesting. There's a draw for £200 worth of Amazon vouchers to boot. I'll put a link on the Facebook page and on my website, thehistoryofengland.com. Thank you very much in advance. That address again is survey.acast.com. Sounds odd, I know. Secondly, thanks a million for everyone who took part in the Richard III, Knave, Fool or Saviour vote. I have to say, I loved it, despite a small but vociferous group who objected to the very basis of the voting system. You know who you are, Pender, Barbara and Jonathan. Now then, it's a week after the Great Debate, and you're probably thinking, I'll talk all about winners and losers, pros and cons, coins and angels and all that sort of thing, but not a bit of it, gentle listeners, because you are actually listening to a previous version of me. A pre-Great Debate Result version of me. Because outrageously, we've gone on holiday. So this is a pre-recorded episode as they all are actually, I suppose. Anyway, and I'm also going to tell you that there is no pre-recorded episode for next weekend, so you can all have a week off. Though with a bit of luck, I'll get the results of the poll up on the Facebook page at least. It'll give me something to do while I'm trying to avoid the heat that the rest of my family will be lapping up. I hate to whine, but there you are. Ah, the sweet rain of England, best weather in the world. Today I thought it might be good to spend just a bit of time on a couple of aspects of the goings-on of 1483 that I felt got a bit lost. What the women in the story thought of all this, and Buckingham, who for such a major player I spent remarkably little time on. Before going on to talk a bit about what happened next. Because more things happen, let me tell you. That indeed is the thing about history. The women thing is, I'm afraid, more than a little difficult. For the same old reason that we really don't know very much, given the focus on all the blokes. Of course, Elizabeth Woodville gets a lot of coverage, and there will be more to come. We talked about her involvement in 1483. As with everything, there are so many ways to read it. So hate it or loathe it, the Queen was presented with cast-iron, honest-to-goodness, no-poo evidence that the Woodvilles were indeed held in some suspicion, as she tried to raise the crowd against Gloucester. There's little doubt that she had thrown the dice to gain political power, but actually, what her council meeting suggested of her primus inter pares' role for Gloucester was perfectly constitutionally reasonable. Anyway, let's not pick at old scabs. What we could have talked about more is the removal of her second son, Richard, Duke of York. Because that's an extraordinary situation for her to be in, isn't it? Just ten years old, his brother in the Tower deeply suspicious uncle who's been bad-mouthing the family with increasing violence. The Westminster Sanctuary, presumably still with a massive hole they'd had to make to get the Queen and her kit in there, had been surrounded by Gloucester soldiers, armed to the teeth. Elizabeth would have been painfully aware that sanctuary was a very flexible concept, and it certainly hadn't helped the Duke of Exeter one little bit when he'd been hauled out of it. Nonetheless, When the venerable Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Bourchier, now 72, approached her, she fought hard against the idea. And actually, the Archbishop thought he'd failed in his task and that the place would be ripped apart by soldiers as a result. And so he turned to the Queen and he laid his personal credibility on the line. He gave his word that her little boy would be returned to her safe and sound, that Gloucester meant no evil. Actually, in the end, she had zero choice, and she gave way at this, trusting that the Archbishop knew what he was doing. The lad was taken to Westminster Palace, and there greeted with smiles and all that sort of thing by Gloucester, which was great and lovely to see, an uncle and his dearest nephew. The very next day, the very same Gloucester cancelled the very coronation for which he'd been removed. The little boy was never seen again outside the Tower of London, or indeed by his mother. Turns out Boucher hadn't the foggiest idea what he was talking about. Either way, we'll come back to Elizabeth in a couple of episodes, for her time of hard decision-making is far from over. So what about Cecily Neville, Gloucester's mum? It would be fascinating to know how she viewed all these goings-on. But unfortunately, we don't even know for sure if she was in London at the time, and we certainly don't know whether she approved of what her son did or if she abhorred it. If you believe Virgil and more that Gloucester was rotten enough to trawl his mother's name through the mud by claiming that Edward IV was the result of a bit of nookie on her part, well then you'd imagine that the relationships were at something of a low point. But on the other hand, Gloucester receives the offer of the throne while staying at his mother's house, It's really difficult to conceive of him being there if he'd just been running his mum down quite so much. As I say, there's almost no evidence of the quality of their relationship and what Cecily thought. There is the fact that Cecily did not attend Gloucester and Anne's coronation, but then Queen Mothers generally didn't. There's a letter the following year from Gloucester to Cecily asking to be kept up to date with her news, and it reads like a friendly letter based on a normal relationship. But then in 1495 the Cecily's will, which makes no mention at all of Gloucester, though that could of course be to avoid annoying the Tudors, and that basically is your lot evidence-wise. To continue the crime of speculating, given Cecily's increasing piety and her adoption of a lay monasticism, it's tempting to assume that Cecily to some degree withdrew from the responsibility for something about which she could do nothing and simply didn't get involved and let matters run their course, which must have been a bit tricky to do. And then, on to Henry Stafford, 2nd Duke of Buckingham. Henry was born in 1455 when his grandfather was Duke. In 1458, his father died, and then his grandfather, Great Pillar of the Lancastrian cause, was killed at the hand of the Yorkists in 1460 and thereby Henry became second duke. Now lineage was of course super important to every member of the nobility, and Buckingham had a particularly fine heritage. He was descended from both John of Gaunt and Thomas of Woodstock, the latter being the fifth son of Edward III. So he had royal blood, a claim to the throne if a suitable number of people popped their clogs. There's a rather famous point in 1483 where Buckingham reportedly says that, oh, he'd forgotten until this moment that John Morton had reminded him of his claim to the throne. Poppycock, ladies and gentlemen, of the highest grade of poppy. Though to digress briefly, I'm sure you will be most diverted to know that poppycock has nothing whatsoever to do with poppies. It is instead a borrowing from the Dutch, Papycak, literally doll's poo. Now, you might think this to be a negative expression, but you would be wrong to so think. The expression was a positive thing, as in, as fine as doll's poo. I love the Dutch, don't you? It was then the Americans who took it and turned doll's poo into a worthless thing during the 19th century. So there you go. Nothing to do whatsoever with Richard III, but I thought you might be interested. So back to Buckingham. So he's a posh guy. Claims to have forgotten he's got royal blood, very, very unlikely to have done so. But he is also a man with a few gripes. First off, the inheritance of the bohuns A name that will maybe bring a tear of reminiscence to a few of your eyes from the glory days of the Normans. And you will, of course, be muttering to yourselves over the sound of the iron and the smell of the damp linen. Ah, yes, of course, the two famous heiresses, Mary and uh, Mary and Eleanor. Now, Mary, she married Henry the Fourth, did she not? Yes, yes, that's right, she did, and Sister Eleanor, well, she'd married Thomas of Woodstock, and her half of the lands had come down to Buckingham. Well, you would be absolutely right to be so thinking, so when the Lancastrians finally crashed and burned at Tewkesbury, and Henry the Sixth somehow mysteriously died, the heir to Mary Bohun's lands was presumably the Buckingham lot right. But as it happens, those lands had disappeared into the royal pocket like a rat up a drain. Buckingham was very keen to lure that rat back down the drain and get his hands on Mary of Bohun's lands as well as Eleanor's. And it really irritated him that his claim had been ignored by Henry IV. But also Buckingham was seething with resentment he'd been banished to his home in the Welsh marches, well away from the centre of political power by Edward IV. There's something odd going on here, and it isn't Stacy's mum. It's not that Buckingham is invisible. There's a rather nice moment I talked about when Louis of Bruges visited the English court, and there's that description of Buckingham dancing with the little Elizabeth of York. Buckingham was with Edward at least initially during the invasion of France, in 1475. And it's Buckingham that Edward uses to open the Parliament that condemns Clarence to death. So he is around on occasions at court, but very rarely, and he's definitely not in the inner circle. It could be that Buckingham, like Gloucester, vocally disapproved of Edward's miserable acceptance of the Treaty of Piquigny in 1475, and actually it looks as though he left with his contingent early. Or it might be that Edward simply didn't like the cut of his jib. There appears to be a spat between the two when Buckingham quartered his arms with those of Thomas Woodstock, which just wasn't very sensitive when your king is slightly worried about his claim. Then there's something of a small of that well-known, overused noun, anti woodvillism if there is such an ism as anti woodvillism Buckingham was married to a sister of Queen Elizabeth, one Catherine Woodville, He'd been married when he was but 10 years old and when Catherine was but 14 years old. And from there, he'd spent his wardship in Elizabeth Woodville's household. Now, for some reason, Dominic Mancini reports that Buckingham was livid at having to be made to marry a Woodville. Such an appalling low-born person, darling. So low-born, in fact, that she had not brought a dowry with her. Now, this assertion is rather difficult to deal with. We have absolutely no other evidence to support the claim, apart from Dominic Mancini's word. He and Catherine have plenty of offspring. There's no obvious sign of estrangement. There's a titchy bit of support for the statement in the fact that Catherine wasn't at the coronation of Richard, in which Buckingham played such a leading role. And I guess it does give some other reason for Buckingham's support for Richard in 1483, in addition to his alienation from the centre of power and his rather obvious ambition. In terms of Buckingham's personal characteristics, well, it just feels as though there's got to be something dicey about him. Not a very scientific comment, sorry. But volatile might be one. The suspicion he flared up and stormed off in France, and therefore wasn't forgiven. He appeared to find it difficult to hold on to loyalties and inspire confidence, but nonetheless appears to have been a good and persuasive speaker. But all of these are just stabs in the dark. We can't be sure what Buckingham was like. But what we can be sure of was that he was very important to Richard in his assumption of the throne. I confess I found it a little difficult to put my finger on exactly why Buckingham came to assume such a partnership and exactly what he did. I'd have thought there was plenty of opportunity for Gloucester and Buckingham to have met while they were growing up. Their paths would have crossed. But there's no evidence they were in any way matey, and in fact, there's no hard evidence they actually met. Paul Murray Kendall speculates that it's the rotten Buckingham that talks the lovely Dickon round that night in Northampton in April fourteen eighty three and persuades him to ruthlessly lock up rivers and usurp the throne. Well, that's speculation. We do see examples, of course, of Buckingham standing shoulder to shoulder with Richard, entering the City of London together at the council meeting and presenting to the London great and good on the 24th of June. And whatever exactly it was that Buckingham did, the extraordinary grants in Wales, is proof enough of how critical Buckingham was to Richard and the trust Gloucester placed in him, and for which he was, of course, so richly rewarded in Wales. Now, as it happens, and as we'll soon see, this is what they call ironic. Ironic with a capital E. Spookily, the coronation that had been such a problem to arrange for Edward turned out to be a doddle to arrange for Richard, and he was crowned in double-quick time on the 6th of July. Notably, he and Anne were crowned together. The last time a king and queen had been crowned both together was... Any guesses out there? Correct, that bloke there doing the ironing... The last time had been Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II. The coronation went ahead with great pomp and ceremony, as you'd expect. You couldn't install a new king by chucking a crown at him, giving him a sausage for supper and sending him on his way, could you now? One of the interesting things, actually, that came out of the discovery of Richard in the car park, with presumably the largest outstanding parking fine in history, was that his diet had improved very considerably near the end of his life. It fits exactly with what we know about Richard. Once he had made his claim to the throne clear on the 22nd of June, he appeared in public in grand and imperial robes. He wined and dined the London elite. And, of course, he threw the most magnificent of parties at the coronation with 46, yes, 46 different courses. I have no idea if sausage was one of them, but I do hope it was. You can't beat a nice sausage. It spoils the flavour. No idea why I'm talking about sausages, and I offer you my formal apology. More relevantly, we are talking about an age where you measured a man and his strength by the size of his retinue and wealth. Richard had to convince the world that he was in control, secure, relaxed, confident, that in the words of the Vogons, resistance was useless. Richard had got his backside on the cold marble of the English throne. Over the next few months... We listen to the clacking of knitting needles as he looks to knit himself a cover for his backside to bring the warm support he needed to keep his backside exactly where it was. Richard's Coronation was by all accounts very well attended. But Richard would not have been daft enough to think that all the problems were over and that all was now love and kisses. If he needed confirmation, the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Bourchier didn't turn up at the banquet would have been some indication. Boucher had given his word to Elizabeth, and Boucher had been made to look a liar. Richard knew that there were factions emerging, factions that he had to reconcile. Obviously, there was his own affinity, the men from the north of England. And that presented him with a problem. The problem is the North-South Divide. Many apologies, a digression coming up the North-South Divide thing. It is of course constantly around these days with the general air of swank drifting up from the south that makes everybody else grumpy. I'm not sure if you folks listening from outside the UK are aware of this or indeed interested but the south of England and the north of England can feel like two very different places and I'm told there's a good deal more prawn cocktail in the south than in the north though possibly less sausage. But the point is it's not by any means a new phenomenon. No one quite knows where the north-south divide starts, as far south as Watford Gap, as far north as the Humber. So essentially, wherever, I essentially come from no man's land. The Midlands, from the war zone in the middle, a man of split loyalties. Anyway, it's by no means a new problem. As you regular listeners will know, after all, in Anglo-Saxon days, there was talk of Northumbria and Southumbria. Northumbria had a distinct and glorious tradition and was the last of the kingdoms to come within the combined Anglo-Saxon England. And there was a difference maintained throughout history. Much more recently, for example, Richard II had used his men from the north, his Cheshire archers, to try and keep him on the throne. In the Crowland Chronicle in particular, there is a strong subtext, that Richard was from the north, that these changes were a northern plot, supported and enforced by northern troops, coming down to the city, certainly by the time of the coronation of Richard. And the Southerners don't like it. Now this couldn't help Richard. On the one hand, he needed his loyal northern supporters close by, and it was only right to reward them for the support they'd given him. On the other hand, he could not alienate London and the south, or make this feel like a northern takeover. Another critical faction was the household of Edward IV. These were the men, nobility and gentry alike, who had been the core part of Edward IV. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider, with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. government. They were leaderless since the removal of Hastings, Morton and Rotherham, but Richard was eager to keep them on board. It is for this reason that the changes Richard made after he'd been protector had by and large been moderate and non-partisan. The new Chancellor, Bishop Russell, the new keeper of the Privy Seal, was seen as a very reasonable appointment, for example. Another example was John Howard. Howard was made Marshal of England and High Steward of England. More than that, Richard had finally completed the job of enticing Howard to his side when he recognised his claim to be Duke of Norfolk, and confirmed him in that title. In this particular case, Howard was his man from that moment on. Generally, Richard therefore avoided stuffing offices with his friends from the north. One exception was a chap called Francis Lovell, who became Chamberlain in place of Hastings. But reconciling Edward IV's largely southern-based household was Richard's main aim and could be the key to his prospects of staying on the throne. Obviously another group was the Woodville affinity, but they were of course essentially flown or irreconcilable. Edward Woodville was with the £10,000 and Henry Tudor in Brittany. Equally, Dorset had fled Sanctuary and despite calling out the hounds, Richard had been unable to locate him and track him down, so he was at large somewhere in England. And the blood of Richard Gray and Rivers was feeding the plants of Pontefract. Yet another critical person was Stanley and his wife, Margaret Beaufort. Despite having banged Stanley up in jail in the 13th of June coup, Richard had quickly realised that here was a man that needed to be reconciled. His power in the North West was formidable. Stanley's son, George Baron Strange, was at home and perfectly capable of raising Lancashire and Cheshire against him. So Richard set Stanley free and confirmed him as steward of the royal household, clapped him on the back and called him his new BFF and gave him the honour of carrying the mace at the coronation. And now enter Margaret Beaufort, stage left, for one of those most delightfully duplicitous exchanges so delightfully typical of the Wars of the Roses. Margaret had got very close with Edward IV to agreeing her son Henry Tudor's return to England as the Earl of Richmond, before Edward had croaked. And so now she spoke to Buckingham, who cleared the way to a conversation with Richard. Margaret spoke to Richard and his Chief Justice the day before the coronation, and Richard seemed open to the same idea of rehabilitating Henry as Earl of Richmond. Great news! It probably helped, of course, that Richard was keen to bring her hubby Stanley inside the tent, so in the spirit of friendliness, He even had Margaret hold a place of honour at the coronation, carrying Queen Anne's crimson train. But I said duplicitous, did I not? For if not already, Margaret was to be in contact with her son and with various disaffected folk. And meanwhile, Richard himself was opening discussions with the Duke of Francis of Brittany with much less positive suggestions about Henry Tudor's future. However, Richard set out just two weeks after his coronation on a tour through England. It could well have been the happiest period of his reign, in fact. His progress actually was something of a model other kings might care to have followed. Most kings of England didn't stray far from the Thames Valley, certainly no further than Watford Gap services, so little wonder if the north felt somewhat disconnected at times. Richard certainly did the south as well, up the Thames Valley and over to Gloucester, at Gloucester, he said farewell well to his partner in this great enterprise, the silver-tongued Buckingham, who now went off to enjoy the fruits of his partnership, to sit down and dribble gently on the parchments, confirming his transfer of over 53 castles to him, to chortle with glee over his newer powers in Wales. He might also have looked forward to the prospect of meeting up with John Morton and a bit of mild gloating, It made the point of asking Richard to give Morton to him as his prisoner in Brecon. When Morton arrived, Buckingham would find that Silver met Silver, and that his tongue was not the only one to be feared. Richard then went northwards, Warwick, Coventry, Leicester, Nottingham, and finally in glory and splendour to York, where his support was the strongest and where they would welcome back their favourite son. His arrival was greeted by shows and pageants, followed by the Corpus Christi plays for which York was famous, and where he invested the hope of his future, of his new dynasty, his only son, the nine-year-old Edward of Middleham, as Prince of Wales. Little Edward, object of his father and mother's hopes, had come to meet Richard at Pontefract riding in a chariot with two guards running by his side all the way, which sounds great fun for the Prince, less fun for the guards. The whole trip was carefully planned. Richard showed himself in confidence and glory as a worthy new king, impressing with his magnificence. The route was designed to woo the southern lords and the household knights he needed and remind the north of their loyalty. He impressed as he went so that even the virulently hostile chronicler Rouse was forced to admit that it showed him in the best light as he agreed, for example, to remove large areas of royal forest, and everyone hated royal forests, and as Richard turned away offers of cash from towns which he, quote, declined with thanks, affirming he would rather have their love than their treasure. This is not a thing any of my children have said to me, just a note. All of this was super great, but in the background plots and stratagems were afoot. Margaret Beaufort appears to have been at the very centre of them. The claims of her son Henry Tudor were still pretty remote, but the removal of the princes has suddenly made his claim a lot closer than it had been. And Margaret had a plan about how they could be made even better by bringing together the houses of York and Tudor through the marriage of Henry to Elizabeth of York, Edward and Elizabeth Woodville's eldest daughter, Now, around this time, September 1483, a strong rumour spread like wildfire that the princes in the Tower had been killed. The story goes that this news got back to the Queen in Sanctuary and in her fury and distress, she listened to Margaret's new idea of the marriage and she agreed. And in Brittany, Henry Tudor also agreed to marry Elizabeth of York and found Duke Francis, far from convinced by Richard's new diplomacy, finally happy to support Henry's bid for power. Duke Francis helped Henry accumulate men, treasure and ships, and presumably Edward Woodville's 10000 quid must have helped oil the wheels as well. Richard, meanwhile, was very probably aware that there were some goings-on, some rumours around. There had been an attempt to free the princes, which had been thwarted, There had been some disturbances quickly suppressed by one John Wells. So as he celebrated at York, he was probably aware and probably already preparing. But he may well not have known the extent of the trouble coming. Because in fact support for a rebellion had spread throughout the south, south of a line from the Thames Valley to the Severn. Margaret's communication seems to have been active and seems to have been very good because there was a plan One centre of rebellion was in Kent. What is it about the men of Kent and Kentish men? A really, really bolshy lot. Cade's Rebellion, Richard II, you know. Anyway, another centre was in central southern England, Wiltshire and Berkshire, with notably yet another Woodville crawling out of the woodwork, this time another Richard Woodville, brother of Anthony, and actually heir to the Earl River's title. You've got to say, Woodvilles were like cockroaches. As many as you stamped on, another batch would emerge. And then the third centre of rebellion was in the south-west, where Dorset finally appeared from his life on the run, and Thomas St. Ledger, the man who'd married Edward IV's sister Anne, after she'd managed to dump the brutal Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. So the plan was this. The men of Kent were to start off proceedings, and they would march and capture London. The men of the south and south-west would then join in from Exeter and Salisbury and prepare the way for Henry, who would land from Brittany with a mighty army. The date for the kick-off was set around the 20th of October, and then the storm would break on Richard's head. So who were these rebels, and what did they want? Who they were was an alliance of Woodvilles excluded from power, Dorset, Richard Woodville, Edward Woodville and Brittany. But primarily it was the exact group, that Richard had been trying to win over the household men of Edward IV. It's unlikely that these men were motivated by fear of losing their positions under Richard. Richard had, after all, as I've just said, confirmed the vast majority in their posts to keep them sweet. What this seems to have been, hated or loathed, was a genuine wave of revulsion against the dispossession of Edward IV's sons. The speed or the competence or... The ferocity of Richard's actions in June had overwhelmed resistance and reduced Parliament to compliance, but it had apparently not convinced. So the Rising was populated by men of property, the gentry. This is no peasants' revolt. This is a revolt of the well-heeled and the well-equipped. Actually, the rumour of the prince's death had the potential to unwind the whole thing. After all, if the princes were dead, then what was the point of the rebellion? Who were they going to put in Richard's place? And this is the genius of Margaret Beaufort's masterstroke. With the combination of Tudor and York in the form of Edward's daughter, Elizabeth of York, now there was a common cause that all could gather behind and support. But there was another arch schemer involved in all of this, John Morton. There, in captivity in Wales, with Buckingham, he began to work on the volatile, greedy Buckingham. He worked on his fears. Support has spread throughout the South. These are men of substance. Outrage at the rumour of the Prince's death was exciting even more outrage. Henry Tudor had the support of Duke Francis now and had an army at his back. You've backed the wrong horse, Buckingham. Plus, it might have been that Buckingham harboured a desire to take the throne himself. He had a cleaner claim than Henry through Thomas of Woodstock, untainted by Bastardy. Of course, there should have been absolutely no prospect of a man so richly rewarded as Buckingham to rebel against the man who'd rewarded him. But this is Buckingham we're talking about. And so astoundingly, Buckingham threw his cap into the ring. And now the rebellion had another centre. Buckingham would march from Wales to link up with the rebels in the south and surely Richard would be squished between them like a bug. Buckingham's is an astounding piece of treachery. The very man who had probably incited Richard to action. And at very least had been his partner and had been so richly rewarded. Not only made practically Viceroy in Wales, but also Richard appeared to have been making moves towards giving him at least a share of the Bohun inheritance. When he heard about Buckingham's treachery, Richard's rage, outrage and distress reaches down to us over the centuries, in a handwritten note when he wrote to Chancellor Russell on the 12th of October. All well and truly determined for to resist the malice of him that had best cause to be true The Duke of Buckingham, the most untrue creature living. We assure you there was never false traitor better purveyed for. Now the sharper of you may have noticed the date. 12th of October. But David, I hear you cry, surely some mistake. Forsooth, forsooth, you hath told us 20th of October was to be the date of the start of the rebellion. Well, therein lies a story of the mistrust treachery that comes from a usurpation. It's quite probable that Richard had his great mate Buckingham under observation anyway. And since the attempt to free the princes, Richard's spies had been at large. He may not have known exactly what was going to happen, but he had an idea. But he also had John Howard to thank. Howard had gone into his estates in Sussex early in October and heard rumours that, the Kentish men be up in the Weald. The Weald was still, as it had been at the time of Harold II and Billy the Conk, a pretty much impenetrable barrier of woodland and secret ways, the perfect place to gather for rebellion. Howard acted immediately. He sent for more men. He took control of the crossings over the River Thames, blocking the way to London. Confused, The rebellion started too early and the Kentish men withdrew westwards to try and link up with the other groups. But now Richard was on the move. From the 11th of October instructions were sent out assembling a force to muster at Leicester for the 20th of October. And in the northwest Stanley gathered his men and set out towards Wales where Buckingham had declared his hand. Buckingham had actually struggled to raise a large army. The Staffords were known as hard, grinding landlords. Stanley had stayed loyal, in itself interesting, and Richard's supporters had blocked the crossings of the River Severn into England. So Buckingham was trapped, and then the heavens opened. On the 15th of October, a massive storm broke over the heads of Buckingham's reluctant army, flooding the river and indeed the army and Buckingham's reluctant army was washed away, its morale broken by the rain, and Buckingham fled with his servant, Ralph Bannister, to hiding in Shropshire. With the news of the failure of Buckingham, the news of the chaos in Kent, the rest of the rebellion simply collapsed. Richard arrived in Dorset by the 8th of November, but most of the rebel leaders had already fled by that time. Henry Tudor's fleet had been scattered by storms, but anyway Richard now controlled the coast, he had nowhere to land, and so Henry slunk back to Brittany, tail between his legs, but on the other hand, tail still firmly attached to his body, to wag another day. Dorset, Morton and the Bishop of Exeter and a whole slew of Edward IV's old household gentry fled to join Tudor in exile in Brittany. And by the 25th of November, 1483, Richard was back in London with almost all the fires of rebellion comprehensively doused. He had faced his first challenge and come through triumphant. And if evidence were needed of Richard's basic competence, there is plenty of evidence here. Yes, the rebels had some bad luck, but for the most part, Richard appeared well informed and always in control. We'll talk a bit more about the outcomes and consequences of the rebellion next time, and hear about the reign of good King Richard. Meanwhile, I have folks to thank for their donations. Regular donators Stuart, Eric and Cool; Matthew, Janita and Jubal, Jim, Adrian and Cathy. And donators this month, Jine, Mark and David, Jonathan, Christopher and Erica, Craig and Jonathan. Thanks all very much. Thank you for listening, everyone, and see you in a fortnight's time.